Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips Herb, Tax Girl. I'm a tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers and tax practitioners like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. One of the most talked about tax moves last year was the child tax credit expansion. Despite the fact that taxpayers are no longer receiving monthly payments, it is still worthwhile for low-income families to file tax returns to get a child tax credit payment from the IRS this year. As part of the effort to get out the word and to make it easier for taxpayers, the IRS introduced a simplified filing process, which allows families to submit a streamlined set of information to claim benefits, including the CTC and stimulus checks. To talk about the mechanics, I've invited David Newville and Gabriel Zucker to the show. David is Senior Program Director for Tax Benefits at Code for America. He has spent the last decade in Washington building financial security for low and moderate income people during his stint as a Senior Policy Advisor at the Treasury Department during the Obama administration. Gabriel is the Associate Policy Director for Tax Benefits at Code for America. He has nearly a decade of experience in the evaluation, design, and implementation of progressive policy and has previously conducted research and advocacy on veteran homelessness programs and paid family leave. Thank both of you so much for being here today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us, Kelly. So let's kind of give a little background first on the expansion. I think most people understand generally, but if you could maybe just walk us through what it is, what people need to know about it, and then we can talk about the role that you both have had in um, helping taxpayers to get access to it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the key thing that happened with the child tax credit last year, you know, as folks know, is that there were three main changes in the policy. First, it was increased in size uh, from it having $2,000 per child in the new law. It was in 3,000 per older child or 3,600 per younger child. It was made available to 17-year-olds, which it previously wasn't. And then most importantly, it was made fully refundable. So you know, previously, folks in the low end of the income scale, most of our work focuses on weren't getting it. And now, as of the changes last year, they're eligible for the full amount. And then, of course, the last piece of it was that uh, the credit was unavailable in advanced monthly payments. So instead of folks getting it all at once at tax time and having you know, sometimes to borrow money or to do other things in order to get through until they got that payment, They've got it in monthly payments throughout the second half of last year. So a lot of really big, important changes to make this a lot really more powerful lifeline for families in need. Right. And, it, and one of the things I think that's really confusing for folks is something we've talked about on this show before, is that a lot of these changes that you mentioned, and specifically the advanced payment piece of it, is something that was available last year, but is not available this year. And I think that that has created a confusion about the availability generally of the child tax credit. Yeah, it's something that makes a lot of sense, you know, I think to us who work on taxes that like, okay, these were advanced payments. Um, you know, some of your credit arrived throughout the year last year, but any portion you didn't get, you can get when you file this year, because this is when you file your actual tax return and do that reconciliation. But you're right, it's certainly it's been confusing, especially for a lot of the population we work with to explain that you got half the credit. And then maybe there's more of the credit coming. And you know, what, even if you got the payments you file, if you didn't get the payments you file, I think there was probably some expectation that these monthly payments kept going. It would start to make more sense for folks. Like, okay, the check comes every month, you keep filing. So it has been a little tricky to communicate to people, you know, given that situation of some payments coming before, some coming now. But the other hand, it's, it's convenient because we tell everyone they have to file this year and they're going to get money. They'll either get some money or they'll get a lot of money. And in that sense, it's, been, it's made it a little bit easier. 
And I think one of the other things that I'm hearing from folks that can be confusing is that it's both similar to and different from the stimulus checks. And I think that that is one of the pieces that has confused taxpayers because of the, for example, that if you didn't get all of your stimulus check payment, then you could file your tax return and get the difference, much like you can with the child tax credit. However, unlike the stimulus payments, there is a possibility that some folks could have to do repayment if they don't fall within the safe harbor. And so I think that the rules are similar enough and yet different enough that it's causing confusion for taxpayers. Is that something that you're hearing? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, you also only need to you know, look at Google Analytics and see the number of people who are searching for things like, you know, child tax credit stimulus or something that's kind of, you know, halfway between, you know, which program is it or saying, referring to some of the monthly payments as a stimulus payment. And, you know, I don't blame people for thinking that they feel pretty similar. It's in the middle of COVID and the government's sending you a check. Sure. I, I think conveniently for, for us, we don't necessarily need people who are using some of the tools that we're promoting to understand that distinction, we're saying that you can get some benefits from the government, you'll have to file, we'll walk you through which payments it is. But I mean, you're absolutely right. All these details that we all think are quite clear, I think are not always clear to the people we're trying to get the money to. Right. And so where do you guys come in? Like, What kinds of tools are available to these families to make sure that they get the amount of credit that they need? Yeah, I think that's the really interesting point to answer your question, Kelly. This is David. And to kind of build off the earlier question is like, this is confusing for a lot of people, for anyone, people who are used to kind of filing taxes regularly, both the stimulus payments, I mean, obviously started with them, then with the addition of the child tax credit, it just really brought in a whole population of folks who were, you know, we refer to them as non-filers, but essentially they are now filers because they are eligible for benefits that they have to file a tax return to access. It kind of just brought in a whole new segment population, which is traditionally a pretty vulnerable segment of folks who are lower income into the tax system. So on top of having kind of this confusing situation with like EIPs and different rules and child tax credit payments for those who are eligible for both, you were bringing people in who had either not filed a tax return or interfaced with the tax system for a very long time, or or many of them, it's their first time. And we know how confusing that can be in general. And I think that's been a big sea change and kind of what brought us into this space to try to develop tools like GetCTC and other guidance that we have on getctc.org, you know, and the other resources we have, like, you know, online chat and other pieces to really help people navigate this. And on top of that, in addition to kind of creating direct tools for tax filers themselves, we also worked with a very large group of partners and other organizations, whether they're kind of CBOs or government agencies or others, those that kind of touch on this population of folks who are interested and eligible for the these new benefits and trying to help them train them up. We referred to them as navigators, kind of building off of the Affordable Care Act navigators in the sense of folks in the community with connections to people who are eligible for these benefits who have a high degree of trust with them and connections to them in the community or through benefits access and other channels, for example, such as these state agencies to really help get information to them and help them assess like, is this the right tool for me? How do I access it? How do I navigate these questions? Sometimes a lot of the basic questions, not even getting into the tax questions and the eligibility questions, but trying to get people who are eligible to the right doors so they can access this and answer their questions. And then having a set of resources that are available for us to also answer those more thorny tax questions to kind of help people get through the tool and make sure they're successful and access these benefits ultimately. 
And you mentioned trust. And that actually, I think, is a really interesting piece of this because part of my my work, I've worked with Vida and some tax clinics, and I have done a bit of pro bono with some of the same populations that you're talking about. And a lot of times, even, you know, even before this, even when we're talking about just like EITC or some other kind of tax credit that they might benefit from, there's a real reluctance to be involved with the IRS because there's been, you know, the perception is that it's really scary. And especially if people are in populations where they might be only marginally involved with government <laughs> or government agencies and their experiences might not have been terrific, they're really fearful of turning over personal information. So how do you overcome that? That's an excellent point, Kelly. I mean, part of Code for America overall, even before we started kind of doing tax benefits, was this idea that, you know, unfortunately, government services and benefit systems are not always created with the recipients in mind, you know, and making sure that clients can access these systems and they're friendly and, and they're not hostile and they're easy to access. I think the tax system is definitely that way too. And we did a big kind of what we would call like a research and discovery phase before we even kind of launched our tax work with the original product that we uh, run through the Volunteer Income Tax Assistance Program, the getyourrefund.org tool that helps access those services. Even before we did that, we did a lot of research and interviews with you know folks in the free tax preparation field with clients to better understand what are the barriers to really accessing tax benefits. And we looked really closely at folks who are eligible for the earned income tax credit, but not claiming it, which was a very high percentage, up to a fifth of folks um, who are eligible and not receiving it. And we wanted to know, you know, there's this money on the table, why are you not accessing it? You know, what are the barriers? And trust was one of the overwhelming uh, pieces and fear, as you mentioned, you know, a lot of people are scared of the IRS, you know, the IRS is a powerful agency, and they're worried about getting in trouble, or doing something wrong. I think the other big piece about kind of fear and trust is that unfortunately, there's a lot of bad actors in the tax space. There's a lot of good actors too, but the tax space in most states has this unusual aspect of not really having a lot of, you know, kind of basic regulation or competency standards for tax preparation. You know, in some states, you have to go through more training and paperwork to cut someone's hair than you do to actually prepare their taxes, which is, is kind of insane when you think about like the level of sensitivity and, and how important the information that you're dealing with when you're working with a client um, and what that requires. But, you know, for unenrolled agents, you know, there's not really a lot out there. Again, in most states, you know, you have a P10 and the IRS to their credit, they did obviously have do some work in this area before, but it was struck down by the courts and solution has been kind of kind of been sitting in Congress since then. So we don't really have anything or a solution to that. But that's another huge aspect is just, you know, not being sure if people come to our service. And this is part of the important part with all the partnerships that we've done with this is like, is GetCTC a real .org? Is that a real service? Is this another scam? They say it's free. Free seems too good to be true. And I think that's why the partnerships and the navigators were such an important part. And the government agencies, really the connection with child tech's credit.gov and all the state benefit agencies saying, no, this is a legitimate service. And that can help kind of get over these trust issues and help more people access it who might be more reticent um, otherwise. Since you mentioned the the scam part, I just wanted to build on that really quickly because that's something that I've been a tax attorney and writing about this for years. We always see a massive uptick this time of years in phishing scams and ID uh, theft type scams. And even on, I noticed uh, when I was putting up articles and child tax credit is a huge one, when I would put up 
articles on child tax credit, immediately on Facebook in particular, there would be a reply and it would be typically a Google Sites link telling people to find their status here or get a bigger refund here. And it was phishing and identity theft scams. And this is something, you know, IRS talks about every year. How can you overcome that? Because that I do think is a real concern. I mean, you have people, and I will say I'm one of them, who tell my taxpayers all the time, like, be really careful, only go to irs.gov because you don't want folks clicking on links that they're not sure about. So how do you tell them, like, we're the good guys? Yeah, no, it's a great question. You know, I think that's why for us, you know, the validation of connecting with the .gov factor has a huge degree of trust with most folks. And I think having those connections and then Obviously, after when we launched GetCTC last year, after October 15th, you know, um, they pulled down the non-filer portal that they were using through free fillable forms, and they started linking to us via childtaxcredit.gov. That gave us a lot of legitimacy when you could get to our access the tool directly from the IRS. It really Mm -hmm. increased the trust involved there. Even beyond kind of the state agencies and so forth, you know, the community groups that we work with, you know, who had the trust in the communities. When they were the ones saying, no, this is this is a real tool, this is a trustworthy tool, that also, I think, helped a lot. But it is, it, it is a big aspect for us too. And even, you know, a lot of folks found us, you know, through text messaging from with state agencies and also kind of just through Google ads and just organic search. You know, people would come up because um we had tried this in the past with, you know, our work with Get Your Refund. And, you know, using free tax prep or those types of things that are very generic, it's much harder to kind of key in on an audience. But child tax credit is really specific terms. So a lot of people were kind of pinging on GetCTC and able to access that. And when we have those validations, you know, the way SEO works and ads work, you know, if you have these connections and you're linked on government sites and these other pieces, it kind of builds your credibility factor in searches like that and kind of moves you up. So all those different connections, I think, can make us kind of build our legitimacy and the word of mouth that's involved in it too. And connecting with other community institutions too. I mean, I think we did work where schools were doing direct outreach, you know, another place that people can trust where they take their children. And if the school is telling them that it's legitimate or in certain communities, they were, you know, recruiting uh, librarians to really do outreach and assistance and navigate our work around this too. And that's another, you know, trusted community resource that people look to. So I think it's a lot of different touch points and a lot of different groups that need to be involved to really help build that trust for different populations. I was just going to jump in, at, you know, as far as the trust and fear, you know, like in terms of some of the ways we specifically tried to address that well, with some of the tools we offer. And we kind of, as David alluded to, our, our, the first tool we offered was this tool, Get Your Refund, that launched in 2020 that connects folks to VITA. So they get connected to a VITA volunteer, prepares their taxes. That was one way of addressing the trust issue, right? We told people, you're going to connect it to someone who's IRS certified. They will handhold you through this. They will prepare your taxes. This has been stamped, approved by the IRS. You can trust it for that reason. I think that was one way of getting over the trust. But I was mentioning there is kind of another way of getting, getting over that barrier, kind of more the fear side of that same barrier, which is uh, by making it a less scary process. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of what we've heard when we've talked to people who are non-filers who uh, you know, haven't always filed to pin their credits. You know, the fear can be a kind of vague thing. Like in general, like, I don't know, the IRS might show up like in black sunglasses at my door and like, who knows what'll happen. But it can also be like some very specific stuff. Like, I just don't know the answers to these questions. And they're asking me all these very esoteric questions that scare me. And that's really what underlied the, the second tool that we launched last year that David's been referring to, uh, GetCTC, which was a way that people could 
claim credits without having to answer the questions they found scary because of the process the IRS provided for this. Like they didn't have to like try to classify their income into all of the different categories. They didn't have to go look up this document they couldn't find and like be scared they were going to copy the number wrong. That just wasn't part of the process. Um, and people feel a lot less scared when they're just answering like, hey, like what's your kid's name? Are you sure they live with you? So it's kind of, it's, it's, a, it's a big challenge, but we've kind of attacked it from different directions with these different tools we've made available. So how did this partnership come about? Because you've alluded to the first tool and then obviously the Get CTC. How did this come about? Because clearly the things that you're talking about are things that have been on the IRS's mind, right? Like how do we, and, and even before the pandemic, especially going back to EITC, um, as David mentioned, that there is this every year, you know, they, there's a big push to make sure that you claim your EITC. There's an EITC awareness day. So the IRS is very aware that people aren't getting the benefits that they might be entitled to get. So I know it's been on their radar. So how did it come about, first of all, that there was an idea that this could be easier? And then secondly, that you could work with government agencies and partnerships? Yeah, it's it's a great question. It's like a story I, I kind of love telling because as, as one looks back on it, I kind of feel like we've been there watching the like book of history be written about this. And like we were kind of there watching each thing happen. As you look back now, it's really been an interesting kind of couple of years. But I mean, this story began in March 2020 when Congress passed the CARES Act right at the height of the pandemic and you know, uh, it authorized the first economic impact payment to you know nearly every family. And like most of us were hiding inside, you know, washing our groceries or rubbing alcohol. But the government knew it had to get these payments to, you know, 160 million households. And like the, the things that the IRS did in that first month, like that hadn't been done before, I think were really extraordinary. And there, there's two big ones. There was this, obviously, first of all, they automatically issued payments to everyone who had filed in the last couple of years. But then in terms of getting to everyone else, there was this enormous, um, nearly overnight data sharing program that got stood up where I actually don't frankly know all the technical details, but the IRS was able to access social security and veterans affairs and railroad retirement data. So they could use the payment information uh, that was on file from those benefits to automatically issue the EIPs even to folks who hadn't filed taxes. And then the second thing was the simplified filing process. You know, within weeks after the CARES Act passed, IRS released new revenue procedures saying, okay, if you don't have to file a tax return, we know it's going to be pretty much impossible for you to file a tax return right now in the height of this pandemic. So just give the basic information. And it was, you know, it's you're right that it had been something that people have been talking about for a long time, but there was really there was a forcing function, I guess, at the public health emergency and of the really urgent human need to get these payments out. And the, you know, the revenue procedure basically said, you know, don't give us all that other stuff we don't strictly need. This isn't really a function of your income if you don't have to file a return because it doesn't phase out until, you know, some much larger amount. So just tell us who your dependents are, you know, tell us where to send the check, tell us who you are, and we're done. And that's really where this whole story started, at least like the near-term story of it. There was that revenue procedure, there was a simplified filing tool the fillable forms implementation of that simplified filing tool that the IRS launched that month in April 2020. And then it was the product of like, I guess people talk about you can't let a crisis go to waste. So that was a crisis that created this really important process that really made it easier for people to claim tax credits. And then it's kind of expanded from there. So then all the groups who I'd pushed so hard uh, to get more access to economic impact payments throughout 2020 hoped and trusted and assumed that they would have the same tool at their disposal when there were even more tax credits on the line in, uh, during calendar year 2021, when there was suddenly also an advanced CTC, and there was still this advanced as the third EIP, and maybe there were the first two EIPs if you'd missed them. And so the IRS did you know, uh, re-release simplified filing regulations last year in the spring. And you know, that was you know, even before we had any plans of, of building any tool, this was something that had been in flight. 
our involvement, I think, just began that we knew as of early 2021 that we'd learned a lot from operating Get Your Refund about the kinds of things that would really help this population be able to use such a tool. Um, so we said, well, there is this, this regulation. Um, it does really streamline the process of filing a tax return. We think we can take what we've learned from Get Your Refund and apply it uh, to this process and make something that would be written in the language that the population we're trying to serve would understand. They'd be able to access on a phone, which is how they're going to be on a mobile phone, and how they're going to be trying to file a return. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be in English and Spanish. And it, it was really natural, a natural progression of our work uh, from getting your refund. So and then it's, just, it's all continued from there. So the story continues. But I think that's, that's really the beginning of it. It was coming out of the pandemic, and we've continued to build from there. And one of the things that struck me about this, especially as you were talking, is we have not heard any backlash on this, which is very different from what we've recently seen with, for example, ID me, right? Like there, and I think this goes back to the trust issue that, that we were talking about earlier. What do you think it is about the platform that you're doing that has been, you know, apparently well received because we haven't seen stories in the media being critical and, and it seems to have done the job that it was set up to do, especially um, during the pandemic. Why do you think accounts for that kind of difference? And I'm not asking you to draw parallels necessarily between you and another company, but just generally, why was this received better, perhaps? Because again, going back to the trust issue, as someone who spends a lot of their day getting emails from angry taxpayers, you know, there, there are a lot of people who aren't happy with IRS and they're, they're willing to pick it almost anything. And IDME was a, you know, a, a timely example of how a bunch of factors came together. It wasn't just one thing, but there is a, right now a very eager sometimes population who's ready to point fingers and say this didn't go well why haven't we heard that here that's a good question i mean uh, for us i think there's some factors that involve like how we approach the work that made it more likely that we were successful but i also think there was a lot of goodwill towards kind of code for america jumping in to do this in the first place and i think it kind of it kind of come back comes back to our ethos around kind of uh, how we approach civic technology and building better systems. And, you know, as Gabriel kind of described the history, we had a lot of background. We had even kind of done our own version through the VITA program of like an EIP portal back in 2020. So we had a little bit of experience here. And for us, it was like part leaning in to kind of help out in the moment when we knew there was a lot of demand in a really short window for everybody involved, especially the IRS, to be able to do this. But it was also just like, let's see what we can do here. If we can add some value for people who can't access, you know, the free fillable forms version and really kind of make the case for simplified filing in general, we had a hypothesis that if you make it easier, people will do it and more people will be able to access that. And as Gabriel said, you know, that hypothesis has been shown to be true, which is exciting. We weren't entirely sure how it was going to go when we first started it. I think that's like a, a big part of the approach that I think gathered some goodwill from people that we didn't come in kind of assuming, oh, yeah, we can totally do this and this is how you do it. You know, we really engaged in a process that was iterative, kind of taking in a lot of the standard kind of tech approaches of, you know, uh, building on what you know, testing, you know, when things don't work, you correct it and move in different directions and gathering a lot of user feedback, both from tax filers, but also from partners who were very wise in these areas and had a lot of advice for us. And I think the overall thing that increased the likelihood of our success in this area is just kind of the, we call it people-centered, but essentially human-centered design approach of Code for America about 
always putting the needs of the clients first. You know, we, like I said, we had a lot of experience kind of talking to non-filers and low-income tax filers before we started, but we, you know, continue to build on that basis. We built this and we essentially kind of put out there and said, how simple can we make this and how, how much can we push what's in the revenue procedure and in the regs, you know, that are required to make it really as simple as possible and as user-friendly as possible. And we kind of pushed ourselves and, you know, we had a, a 1.0 version and a 2.0 version and many versions after that as we worked on the design and the build and so forth, continuing to push on that. And I, I think there's a lot of room to continue to improve, right? You never kind of reach an endpoint where you're like, oh, you know, everything's perfect. We don't have to do anymore, I think. But I think that's also exciting because we can continue to build and make the tool work better for more families and iterate on it. And I think just engaging in that process, really, um, you know, putting clients first and engaging in that iterative process really made it much more likely for it to be successful as it was last year. And uh, and we hope to continue to be successful. I was actually going to ask you about the next steps, as it were, because at least for now, <laughs> we don't believe that there'll be more stimulus checks, despite headlines. Um, we're probably done with those. Child tax credits sticking around, maybe not in the, the expanded form, but it's sticking around. It's been around for a while. It's going to continue. Do you see the potential to use this in other in other ways? Like, is this something that might target students who aren't filing that might be able to get uh, either EITC or some other kind of benefit? Is this something that you guys are in conversations with or that even if you're not in conversations with the IRS that you're having with each other, like how can we continue to use this and to, to make this easier for people? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. You know, I think we've seen a lot of success from this. So it would really be a shame to be like, ah, you know, I guess these credits aren't around anymore. There's no use for this. We've seen that like lots of folks who over many years haven't filed tax returns are able to file this way. It really breaks down a lot of barriers. So yeah, it would be a shame for that to go away just, just because there's not more economic impact payments and, um, and we don't know the future of the CTC. The obvious one here is their income tax credit. I mean, as David alluded to, like the original impetus of all of this work was about that one in five EITC gap most of which is people who don't file returns, trying to make it easier for them to file returns to claim hundreds or thousands of dollars. And we, we have long seen that as the next step for simplified filing. You know, we think that we're looking at a population, uh, you can only use simplified filing if you don't have a filing obligation. Uh, if you don't have a filing obligation, uh, you pretty much only have W-2 income. If you pretty much only have W-2 income, the IRS knows what you earn. We can get to a world where the IRS takes that information and figures out your EITC for you. And that's, you know, that's the world we, we do hope to get to. It's not the world we're in this year. You know, David mentioned that we we got that revenue procedure to define simplified filing this year. It talks about the EITC, and I think you know we think that's like a really exciting move because it shows that the IRS understands that this procedure has the potential to really transform this benefit that's been around for a long time. And that no matter what happens in the current political fights, we're going to hopefully still have this. But it doesn't actually do it in quite the in simplified manner that we're hoping for. So it's it's requiring folks to go ahead and report their W two, attach their W two, the same as you would in a full traditional tax return. We think we can get to a world where you know, it's the same kind of information you're providing on a simplified form as you were last year and will be this year for CTC, but that the IRS will take what they already know about you and your W-2 income to calculate your EITC for you. Now, could it keep expanding from there? Sure, you can, you can think about adding other credits, you can think about adding other populations. But this basic principle that for people who haven't been filing, making it easier for them and not asking things they don't, that the IRS doesn't really need in order to issue benefits, that I think we've, you know, we've all by the IRS doing the regulation and then through the forms of still, we've proven that actually works. So yeah, we definitely want to see that continue no matter what happens with CTC. 
Yeah, I think when the easy form disappeared, and I understand the, the reasons for it, but I think when it disappeared, that was a real blow for certain communities who, even if their fears were ultimately unfounded, because yes, you can use software to, to walk through a 1040 just like you can a 1040EZ, the perception of it is that, you know, you're making this hard. So I guess, you know, what you're doing is kind of going back to almost an electronic version of an EZ, because a lot of people who filed an easy form were doing it for a refund. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it's not it's not conceptually different in that sense. In a certain sense, it's just the epitome of common sense. If you make you lower barriers, it gets easier for folks. Sure. Yeah, you know, we've seen it. We've seen it really be true for the population we care most about. So definitely want to make sure there's still a way that can apply to all the tax credits that are out there. And for listeners, and most of my listeners tend to be practitioners. So if they're encountering folks who are struggling with these kinds of issues, can you? walk people through where they can find these tools in a trustworthy place? Yeah, absolutely. So as we alluded to earlier, the, the simplified filing we've been talking about, that's not actually allowed to launch this year until after the traditional season's over. So we're looking at launching most likely in May, our simplified tool. So right now, for folks who don't have a filing obligation who would benefit from this, they actually can't access that yet. Oh, what they can do is they can go to getyourrefund.org, which is where we have the full suite of services available. We have our traditional virtual VITA service where people on that website, they fill out a virtual VITA intake. We map them to a VITA volunteer. VITA volunteer prepares their taxes. Traditional VITA experiences, they can do that front door online. We'll walk them through it. There's also on our website what we call the file myself model, which uh, technically the facilitated self-assistance model where people can use tax software online, again, with VITA assistance via chat while they do it. Or they can sign up to get updates from us when we launch the simplified filing tool, again, most likely in May. You know, based on some stuff, uh, the additional rules we get about it. And you know, whether people do it now or later, it's, we spend a lot of time to try to make Get Your Refund as accessible as possible to, to a very low-income population because that's our priority. It's certainly not the case that people can't go ahead and get the shot right now, but there are still barriers to that. If people do have some income and they can't track down that income document, it can be a challenge. So for someone about in that situation, they might consider waiting a little bit later in the year until those barriers have gone away. It's really going to be a little case-by-case. And you might not be able to answer this, but I will say, um, I don't know if you're on Twitter a lot, but on tax Twitter, there were critics, and I was one of them, of the exact thing that you mentioned in terms of timing. And the reason for the criticism is that a lot of folks who we assume um, are the folks who are, are the targets of these tools are typically early filers because they want their refunds earlier. Was this, and I appreciate that it was in the, the IRS directive, but was this something that was a decision made by IRS? Was it a decision that the two of you made together? Is Can you or are you allowed to share how that timing came about? It's there in the IRS rules, right? And that, right. Yes. that came from the IRS. We didn't, <laughs> that, that, that didn't come from us, obviously. I think, you know, there, there is like one good reason that's been passed around that's you know, worth discussing, which is that as currently constituted, this whole situation, this whole ecosystem can be confusing. Yes. Um, and there definitely were cases in 2020. I wrote about this a lot at the time and complained loudly about it that the, because the simplified filing tool was available, but people didn't understand what it was. Folks who actually had to file a full return went ahead and filed a simple return, then got locked out of claiming the EITC they're used to claiming every year. Um, and that caused a lot of grief for people who couldn't get that money because they would have had to file um, an amended return. So there is the, the one benefit of doing the sequencing this way is that, that there is no such confusion. There's the tax season where you file full returns. If you file a full return, 
And then we have between April and you know October, November, whatever it is, to go after everyone who doesn't usually file a full return. And at that point, almost everyone left is going to be someone in that position who isn't required to, because most people who are required to already will have. Is that enough to like outweigh other considerations? It's kind of not <laughs> up to me to decide that one. I think in the long run, you want to get to a world where these things aren't so separate and so confusing, such that if you come in the door, you get routed to reporting the right amount of information. You don't accidentally go down some path where you've you know, gotten yourself doing something you're not supposed to be doing. But that's something that would you know, take a little bit longer to get to that world, I think. Gotcha. Is there anything else that taxpayers should know? Or I was going to say we're non-filers. <laughs> yeah, I think we say it over and over. There's so much money on the line. There's been all this, you know, we talked about it earlier. I mean, you were saying that people, it's, it's a lot of nuance that there were advanced payments and then the advanced payment stopped. So people think it's the end of the CDC. Like, no, there's still half the CDC. Or if you didn't get it, there's all of the CDC. If you didn't get it, there's all of the third economic impact payment. That's a lot of money. <laughs> and people should yes. definitely go ahead Really, I think we, the message has to be we need everyone to file. We need to show that we can get also this assistance to people who need it most. And we've got this year to really show that. Awesome. Well, before you guys go, we do a little uh, Q&A at the end of each podcast where I just ask you a couple of uh, questions. And so my um, first question would be, what is your favorite book and why? This is David. I think probably the one of my favorite books that's relevant for this discussion is a book by Kathy Eaton, who's a professor. I think she's at Princeton now, but she wrote this book, several books, but there's one called It's Not Like I'm Poor. It's a lot of interviews with low-income families and kind of how they manage their money and, and how they see the tax filing process. And just at the time, it's a couple of years old now. So it's obviously before all uh, stimulus payments and child tax credits. But it, it talked about just the transformative role the earned income tax credit plays in the lives of families and just like how families utilize it and invest in their children and their own futures and just, you know, what an important lifeline it is. And those of us in the tax world, it's easy to forget, you know, we think about the technicalities of things in the tax world, especially the EITC, which is quite complex. It's easy to forget that, you know, the EITC is is the largest anti-poverty program in the country um, or originally was. So it's, it's just, to me, that's a great grounding book about like, how do actual tax filers interact with, you know, the tax system and like what's at stake for them? Like how much this means in their lives and how important it is to them. Looking forward to tax time and this benefit and what it does for them, where there are many of us in the tax world who kind of fear taxes or, you know, try to put it off or otherwise, or those of us who are professionals who really enjoy it. But it's just a unique perspective of, of the role of taxes in the lives of these families. I actually hadn't heard of that one, so I'm putting it on my list. Thank you. And Gabriel, what's yours? You know, I'm pretty bad at favorites across the board. And then I definitely don't have a way to stay on brand with the tax theme right now. But I'm going to, during the pandemic, finish the Elena Fronte Neapolitan novels. So that's fresh in my mind. I'll go with that as my favorite book or set of four books, depending on how you look at it. Thanks. What is your favorite tax code section or reg? I could get pretty esoteric with this, but I think the obvious choice has to be the revenue procedure that has allowed simplified filing in the last three years. So this year, that's uh, revenue procedure 2022-12, I think I'd have to say. Since it came up earlier, I guess I can come back to it again. I would agree with Gabriel on top choice, but if I had to pick a second one, pick a reg that no longer exists, which is the paid prepare regulations that were originally <laughs> enacted by the IRS. I really do to come back to that question of like just trust and just making sure that, you know, there's fidelity in the system and people feel like, you know, they're getting good tax advice and getting their taxes done well and safely. I think it's really important. So Let's hope it comes back in some form. Congress takes action at some point to, to, to bring those regs back and let the IRS implement them. And then finally, tax Twitter would want to know pancakes or waffles. 
I don't know about Gabriel, but I'm squarely in camp pancake. My 18th month year old son is really into pancakes too. So he's taken after me and we enjoy them a lot. Waffles are not bad, but I, I just feel like pancakes win every time. I'll probably have to go on team pancake as well. I feel like one comes across more pancakes. So I think I'm a bit more of a connoisseur of the pancake. Waffles are kind of few and far between. So it's a little hard to know what's going on with a waffle. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for being here today. If you wanted to be found and my listeners wanted to find you either on social or on the web, where would you send them? Yeah, thanks so much for having us, Kelly. It's, it's been great talking with you. Folks can find me online on Twitter at DLNewville, D-L-N-E-W-V-I-L-L-E. Yeah, thanks, Kelly, so much for having us. I'm ostensibly on Twitter at Zucker Gabriel, although anyone who goes there will quickly find I haven't been terribly active, but maybe this will be exactly what I need to get going. Oh, we'd love to have you over at Tax Twitter. So, so maybe so. I appreciate the invitation. Thanks so much for being here. I appreciate it. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening, because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be. The number of words in the tax code is estimated to be 1 million, about the same length as the entire Harry Potter series. Add in IRS regs, rev rulings, and case law, and it can be a lot. We all need a little help to sort it out. Each week on the Tax Girl podcast, I talk to the best in the business. And these aren't crazy technical dives. They're interesting and easy to digest looks at topics that matter to you. It's all that you need to stay ahead on the most important tax issues. You can subscribe to the podcast for free on taxgirl.com because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't be.